Today, you will hear from a man who took three orphan children and left them with a treacherous, manipulative cousin who forced them to participate in terrible things, placing them in plights. But, do you know what? You're going to like this man just as much as tens of millions of other people have all over the world. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. If you are interested in talk shows with predictable content, then you had better seek something else. For there is little that is predictable or expected in this interview. My name is Campbell. And it is my responsibility to introduce you to one person divided into two. Respectfully, one Mr. Snicket and one Mr. Handler. Or, for the few that know them intimately, Lemony and Daniel. When I first encountered the name Lemony Snicket, I frankly thought, what a polished and distinguished name. And I considered that he might be of all things British. And as I turned the first few pages of the book, bearing the appellation, I recognized a rude doll-esque style of writing. And by then I was utterly convinced, of course, he must be British. But I was strikingly wrong. You see, I eventually discovered that Lemony Snicket was closely tied to one Daniel Handler, a native San Franciscan, causing me to like the author gentleman all the more. So my sons and I happily made our way through multiple volumes of a series of unfortunate events, which have proven to be, well, most fortunate for the said Mr. Handler, as his books have now sold over 70 million copies and have been translated into 40 languages and counting. Under the moniker of Daniel Handler, my guest has written works of adult fiction, the latest of which is an examination of married life in the city by the bay, entitled Bottle Grove. Daniel Handler, welcome to Watching America. Uh, Thank you very much. Happy to be here. I must ask, having lived in the Sunset District for over a decade, uh, on 39th and Lawton is where I lived, there is a particular part of land, uh, or or section of land, which is about 33 acres. It's called Stern Grove. May I inquire, is that piece of property on 19th and Slope the inspiration for Bottle Grove? Um, Partially, definitely. Uh, It's... um it's a that is a place that I spent a lot of time in when I was young and um so I and I walk around the city a lot and so when I was first thinking about the novel I um was revisiting that place and thinking about it but um San Francisco has a blessing of having many um parks that are unkempt yes of which Stern Grove is certainly one and I've always liked the idea that there are these patches of land which are um thanks to the work of naturalists in the late 19th century, permanently um, wild or permanently unbuilt on anyway. And um, the idea of a city that is consistently um, changing and being overturned and getting certainly lately glossier and glossier, I like the idea of these wild patches. So Sterngrove was one of them. But then the idea of making a kind of fictional uh, geography of San Francisco and making up a new park and putting neighborhoods next to one another that aren't necessarily 
next to one another on the map was um, too alluring to let go of. <laughs> well, I used to take uh, my wife and I used to take our sons uh, uh, always to uh, to Stone Grove and loved it. And when I and I read that passage, I thought, yes, I know exactly what he's talking about. But I wanted a confirmation. Thank you very much. Speaking of San Francisco, um, it's a, it's kind of a, a challenge to write about that particular city. I mean, uh, you go, can go back and there's the Dashnell Hammett stuff, the detective stuff, and there's tales of the city and things of this nature. Did you find it um, to be a particular challenge? on one level, because, well, you're so intimate with the city. I mean, you were born there. Yeah, but, I mean, one of the fascinating things I find about San Francisco um, that actually seems distinct from so many cities is that it has so many independent little cultures streaming around one another. And Mm. so my autobiographical experience of San Francisco has very little to do with so many of the stories that are that other people consider the quintessential San Francisco story. And I think that makes the city a challenge to write about. There's no classic San Francisco novel. And, um, but, it, but also it makes it delicious because you can leave behind your own story and realize that you can go kind of anywhere you want. Well, there's a, literally a subterranean aspect too, which I find or did find very fascinating when I lived there. I mean, I would take the end Judah uh, to the accompaniment of, you know, and you'd yeah. find a total dis- different uh, classification of 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 humanity uh, that were taking, you know, streetcars versus those who were tourists taking cable cars and what have you. But I think you you really are very adroit at painting your own perception of the city that is is quite delightful, really is. Let's go back further. Um, you were in San Francisco, and then you decided, like most young American people of some means, to go to university. And you chose another locale that I know quite well, Middletown, Connecticut, Wesleyan University. You know and, Middletown, Connecticut yeah. quite well? Yes, I do, because you see, I lived in Meriden and Wallingford, and if ah. you are just right up the street. Yeah, yeah. So when I needed to go buy clothes or something, and there was Bob's surplus, I don't know if you remember that. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So I know that I know the terrain very, very well. Um, how did you adjust? Because you see, I, I left San Francisco and came out to the East Coast to to Virginia. And as lovely and delightful as Virginia is, I still hearken back to wonderful days and memories of being in, in the city by the bay. So did you have any uh, mournful sadness about leaving San Francisco with nothing against Middletown, Connecticut, but it is decidedly different? What was that experience like for you? Uh, startling. I um, I was not really aware growing up in San Francisco of what a unique place San Francisco was. Mm. In fact, when I left for college, I remember I said to people, I imagine that I'll settle in any uh, kind of medium-sized city. That's what I like best. That's what I thought I liked best about San Francisco. And um, when I was at Wesley and I had a girlfriend who lived in Pittsburgh, and I remember when I arrived in Pittsburgh thinking to myself, this is the same thing at all. I don't <laughs> think medium-sized is what I like about a city. Yes. And... Um, yeah, I was not. I mean, there were so many things I wasn't used to. I was used to a big city, and um, I was also I was used to California weather. I remember my first winter in Middletown, Connecticut. That mm. I woke up and there was no snow on the ground. There was sunshine outside, and I stepped outside in a short sleeve shirt and thought I was going to die because <laughs> in San Francisco, if it's sunny, it's warm. Yes, and if yes. it isn't, it isn't. Right. And so. I didn't. I had forgotten. There's kind of a cycle of seasons that remains pretty constant, actually. Um, so yeah, that was a confusing time. I spent a lot of time indoors listening to REM. <laughs> well, let me ask you: While you was in a corner losing your religion, um, how did you meet the lovely Lisa Brown? Now, your eventual wife. Now, I'm I'm a, a, a unapologetic romantic, and I love to know how people first met. Was it love at first sight? How did it happen? Um, well, it's quite a romantic story. Oh, good. Um, in college, I uh, suffered from a seizure disorder. I, I still have it, actually, but it was very dramatic in college. And uh, she and I were in Chaucer class together. We had kind of noticed each other, and there was some mild flirting. But then I had a seizure, and I oh uh, passed unconscious into her lap. Wow. And so when I woke up, I you know, had to apologize and explain myself and our relationship kind of went from there. So I don't know if it was love at first sight. We were we were rebounding. Both of us were rebounding. So we still say that our marriage is something that happened on the rebound. 
I had this mental image of of uh, of you falling and and the song from the 1980s. I nearly died in your arms last night. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're a musician. I know you love music. So, we... <laughs> but it wasn't death. But it was a very dramatic way of kind of forcing an, an actual conversation between two people. Well, what transpired after that? I mean, was it endless cups of coffee, or did you go to the local pizzeria? How did, how did you handle it? Um, we took a lot of walks. That's what we did. Yes. Um, and that was the thing to do in Middletown, Connecticut. <laughs> That's about the only thing to do. Yeah. There, I mean, actually, it was very shocking for me coming from San Francisco, where um, even in the 80s, there was espresso every 20 feet, was to go to this town that was very Italian, but yes. really had no espresso to offer people. <laughs> and so I had a little espresso maker in my room, which worked sporadically. And um, I would put it in paper cups and I would take a walk with Lisa Brown. Has there ever been a, uh, a a temptation to write about your your Middletown days, or have you been able to resist that? Yeah, I don't really know what I would say. I don't. I mean, um, never say never, I guess. But certainly, I don't picture that I would write something autobiographical about that time. But um, certainly, a small college town is um, a setting that many writers have made hay with. But um, no, I had. I mean, I had really wonderful mentors. I had. Um, uh, Kit and Joseph Reed. Kit Reed was a um, fiction writer, and she taught a fiction class where you had to write yes. 10 pages a day and then sit at her kitchen table, and she told you what was wrong with it. And then her husband, uh, Joe Reed, was a um, literature and film professor. They were married to each other, and they had a house right on campus, and um, I spent a lot of time there. That was what I, That's what I think of most, actually, because I met Lisa Brown right at the end of college, but for most of the time... What I think of is hanging out at the Reed's house. Well, Kit Reed was um, more than just a mentor. I, I sense an emotional accord uh, with her from the things you have said about her and, and referenced her. W- what did she mean to you as far as your development and also sense of harmony and security away from home? Um, she meant everything in those um, things. You're, you're not at all wrong. She... Um, I mean, when I arrived at Wesleyan, I, I really wanted to be a writer, and I signed up for a class taught by a famous writer, and that you had to go in for an interview with a famous writer, and the famous writer said that on the first day of class, I was to bring a poem I'd memorized, and that we were all going to lie down in a field and recite it. And I left the office thinking, I guess I don't want to be a writer, <laughs> because I had no interest in doing that. Yeah. I thought I would maybe do that on a date someday, but it didn't seem like a way to learn how to be a writer. Yes. Yeah. And it was really quite confusing. You know, I felt like it was my first day at medical school, and I said, oh, I didn't realize there was going to be blood. I need to leave. <laughs> and so, um, but, and then through a strange coincidence, I ended up at this kind of dinner for people who were interested in literature, and I sat next to Kit Reed, who I'd never met and then had never heard of, despite her having quite the illustrious career. Mm. And she said that her writing class was that you wrote 10 pages a week, as I said, and that the class only met as a group at the beginning to kind of explain the rules, and then at the end as kind of a party, and that in between we just had these 15-minute appointments with her where she told you um, how your 10 pages were. And that sounded much more like becoming a writer to me. And so I took that class and I took the last slot, no fool I, so that I would sit in the kitchen and then maybe be invited to dinner because I was a starving undergraduate. And um, I was. And she was a, first of all, she was just a wonderful worker. She was really someone who taught you how to work. And, you know, 10 pages a week is a lot for a young person to produce, but it's very necessary. And she was not into uh, reciting poetry in a meadow or any of the kind of pretentious trappings of being a writer. Yes. And um, she really made you work. And that was very inspiring to me. And she also made you start thinking about your own literary canon and the work that was important to you. So I would bring her some 10 pages that I wrote, and she would say, I think this is like Graham Greene. Here is a Graham Greene novel that you should read. And I would read it. And just the idea that there were writers that might be something to which you related um, rather than um, writers that were so important everyone had to read them was a fairly revolutionary idea. But I mean, all this makes it sound like a much colder and more academic relationship than it was. Uh, she was a hoot and a half, and we hung out a lot. And then, as I said, I had this seizure disorder. I was very 
ill sometimes, and she was not maternal, but very supportive. I had a lot of meals with her. I had um, just a lot of time with her, and what she did was kind of provide a space where people she was interested in would come and hang out. And she and Joe left quite the legacy of um, of very well-known and other successful people who were in their orbit. So Joss Whedon was someone they had taught. Um, he was a little older than me, and so uh, we didn't overlap at school, but he came and visited them and brought the rough cut of his first film and was talking to us about the frustrations of that. And I don't mean he visited a class. I mean, he just sat around the living room with about eight of us and talked about that. Mm. And, you know, that was the first time I knew that there was such a thing as a rough cut of a film mm-hmm. or that you could be the writer of a film and really be depressed about how it looked and what it was like. Yes. And that it wasn't yes. um, that somebody called you and said, I'm going to make a movie. And then you ran around in a limousine with startlets for the rest of your life. That, um, that it was another kind of work. And there were other people like that. People worked for magazines, people who made documentaries and poets and academics and um, who had all studied with them and had learned this kind of unpretentious and work-based and enthusiasm, uh, enthusiastic, uh, canon-based experience of working. And I, that was very important to me. When Kit Reed looked at you or considered you, did she foresee, do you think, or is it, uh, speaking of romanticism, uh, uh, far too optimistic, I don't know, but I, I am a teacher, I actually teach film and screenwriting, amongst other things, and when I look at my students and I look at their work, I try to envision not who they are as I see them, but who they may be in five or ten years. Did she, Kit Reed, have that capacity, and do you think she envisioned you having the talent, and not only the talent, but the success that you've garnered over the decades? No, I don't think so. Um, I think she thought, I think she had seen um, so many careers happen the way they do, um, which is unpredictably. So I think she thought I was a good writer, mm-hmm. um, but I don't think she uh, predicted enormous success at all. Um, and when I was coming to the end of my time in Middletown, Connecticut, I said to her, you know, I really want to be a writer. I need you to just tell me if I'm good enough. And she said, that's not how it works. She said, I think you should go get a job that enables you enough time to write and then spend that time writing and see if you like it because you like it so far, but you really have to figure out if that's what you want to do all day, every day. And it was such an infuriating answer. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Just tell me if I'm good enough. That's what I want to know. Right. Don't, give me some long, stupid answer about finding out for myself. I don't want to do that. <laughs> um, but she was right, of course. Yes. And um, I've always been very grateful for that because she neither told me that, it was, that I wasn't going to make it or that I was, but that the work was kind of the most important thing. Yeah, and actually it could have been destructive if she told you she thought you were going to make it because then right. you could have just, you know, backpedaled and not made any ground. Yeah, and there's no way to know if anyone's going to make it, certainly um, in terms of visibility or success. Um, and then I've just, I, I know so many writers who took a long time to shed themselves of the romantic attachments of being a writer. Mm. And some of them never have. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so they love being a writer, but they don't necessarily love writing. And it makes for a miserable life. A miserable reading. You don't get to sit on a stage and give your opinions about literature nearly as often as you have to sit at a desk and get something done. Yes. And yeah. so I'm really grateful for that, that she um, led me into this line of work, not with magic and memorized poems in a meadow, but with work. Well, many have heard of your 38 rejection slips that you got sending out your initial novel and work. And uh, then finally, 39th, evidently, it's picked up. <laughs> in, I mean, that, that was, and I don't mean this dismissively, and you know, I think, how I mean it, although the listener may not know. Um, it was a marginal success for you, but a very significant success, but a marginal success, certainly economically for you. Yeah. Were you surprised at your mammoth success that came... Uh, through your alias as as Lemony Snicket? Um, I'm still surprised, frankly. Um, Every time someone recites the number of copies I've supposedly sold, including uh, as you did 
70 million uh, Not long ago in your introduction, I have a, a dizzying moment. <laughs> it feels like I'm looking off a cliff. Um, Are you afraid of it going away? Not, I mean, obviously it couldn't. But is there some irrational fear inside of you? Like, I can't believe this has happened. I mean, I've spoken to celebrities who have been in the position to have huge homes and mansions. And even though they own it and, you know, the deed is in their name, they have shared that they still have this, this sense of fear and dread that it could suddenly, you know, vanish overnight. Are you ever haunted by such an irrational fear? Um, I think my hauntings of that sort of thing come from uh, being raised Jewish and being raised by a family that had fled a country in which they had, in fact, been very comfortable and lost everything. So I don't... Um, it's not, oh, no, I won't be famous or something. It's, um, it's more sad for the state of the world, and certainly I... Uh, so things don't seem prominent to you. I don't, I don't to have you. to bring up the circumstances under which we're talking now to say that there's all kinds of nerve-wracking things that can happen that have certainly nothing to do with how visible you are or how many yes. copies you've sold. Yes. Um, but I remain astonished that so many people were interested. Um, all of my favorite writers growing up were not... Um, astonishing successes. And I always thought that I would fall very neatly in the tradition of oddball fiction appreciated by a small cult who maybe didn't even know about each other. Your writing um, is is fascinating because I, 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 I get the sense, and I don't know, and you'll have to obviously correct me and rectify if I'm saying something in error here. But I, I you know, there's that old adage, believe, uh, start rather with the end in mind. And um, I, at least when I write screenplays, I don't do that. I never know where I'm going. And that's part of the delight. Otherwise, I'd become bored. Do you know where you're going with a particular story? For instance, when you, you know, page one and you're at your, your um, computer and your laptop and you are beginning to write Bottle Grove, do you know where the story is going to go? I mean, you know what it's roughly about, but is it a mystery to you as it unfolds? I often know where it's going to go, but I don't know how it's going to get there. Ah, okay. Um, and so, I mean, when I don't teach writing very often, but when I have, and we talk about outlining, I always say that I think of a literal outline of chalk that a detective does, um, you know, in a um, police procedural. Mm -hmm. And so you have this outline, and it kind of tells the story, but it doesn't tell the story at all. Right? You have the yeah, outline of yeah. a corpse on the, yes. on the sidewalk, but the yes. whole thing is finding out what actually happened. And so I do feel that way. I often have some kind of sense of where it will go, and I really don't know when I get there. And I'm always relieved if my subconscious or unconscious has done some kind of work for me. Among many intriguing things that you have said, this one particularly struck me as somebody who's infatuated with story and narrative. You said that your favorite word for, liter for literary inspiration is wrong. Yeah, I do like that word. Uh, you want to tell the audience why? <laughs> um, it just seems um, like it brings a story with it. Right? He took a sip of the wrong drink. Um, she walked down the wrong road. Um, you, it, it's something that tilts the whole uh, nature of an ordinary sentence into something that feels like narrative. So I always like it a lot. Immediate conflict. Yeah, or um, so, you know, something's off. So I guess that's a conflict. But something, it immediately, the, the chair is immediately um, r rattly when you sit in it instead of just standing there. I think that's nice. It's almost as if you don't have to make anything happen, but it's already started happening when you use that word. This is Watching America on WHRV. We'll be right back.
If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America, and my special guest is Daniel Handler. Uh, you may know him by his alias, otherwise known as Lemony Snicket, uh, as his pseudonym. Uh, he has written, obviously, a series of unfortunate events, which not only was a successful movie, but also uh, a television series on Netflix for, for two seasons. And his latest work for grown-ups is called Bottle Grove. Regarding the, the television series, I'd like to go into that for a moment. Um, you were the recipient of a Peabody Award, the show was, for its first season. Although, as I understand it, Daniel, you didn't really like the first season. You, you, you were ill at ease with uh, basically having TV writers. How did that work out? And you, as executive producer, eventually took over and you brought in a whole new gaggle of people into your dining room and, 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 and really were having the equivalent of, uh, well, startup table reads going on amongst you as writers. Uh, what's yeah, the story Yeah, I there? mean, um, by the time the first season was made, I was quite happy with it, actually. Um, oh, good. And it was more, there was a, but there was definitely a period where um, some people who were very experienced in TV and not even particularly interested in my work were working on it. And um, that was pretty dire, I would say. And so initially there was a, I said, this doesn't look good. And um, there was a conversation of, uh, you have to trust the process, Daniel. You don't know what you're doing. And so I said, okay, we'll trust the process. And then the process was, if people who are not really interested in your work adapt it, they don't do a very good job. Yes. Um, yeah. And so there was one uh, very good writer who was in that original room, Joe Trace. Um, and he and I did a lot of work on um, the original writer's room scripts, and then everyone, many other people who were working on it, the cast and director and production designer were all very good. So by the time it was really getting going, I was happy. But um, that was certainly a hard experience. And so when Netflix said, um, what would you like for season two? And I said, I don't think uh, I'm cut out for this, but I guess if you made me say what I wanted, it would be that I choose writers myself and they meet in my dining room which I was sure they were going to say, there's no way that can happen. And so they said, sure, why not try? Um, and then I had to say to Lisa Brown, my wife, so you know our dining room? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going to be occupied. Yeah, that's yeah. not really going to be a dining room for a while. Um, and that was really a marvelous time, actually. I think it was um, more like a writer's room that was in my head than what turned out a writer's room to be. Mm -hmm. um, but... We, uh, it was just uh, four of us who were writing and then one assistant. And um, I took what was, I guess, turned out to be a startling move, but I didn't really know it at the time, is I said, well, we're just going to divvy up credit so that everyone's guaranteed a certain amount of credit so that instead of competing to be the best writer or to take over someone's work, we can all work. And when it's not going well, we can say this part isn't going well. Can someone help me with this? Right. And not yeah. worry about how that might play out professionally. And um, Incredibly clever and egalitarian and eliminating right away a lot of potential discord. Brilliant. Yeah. And so these writers, you know, I wanted them to feel comfortable. They were already in my home, and I didn't want them to tell me what a genius I was in my own dining room every 10 seconds so that mm -hmm. I wouldn't get mad at them or something. Um, and... Yeah, I think it led to a fairly egalitarian setup, and um, many of the writers were new to writing for television. Um, Joe Trace had actually found more of them than I had, um, but he was back in the room with me, and um, we had Sigurd Gilmer and uh, Joshua Conkle, who were uh, both playwrights primarily, but were interested in doing this kind of work. Um, we had one assistant, Aziza Abu-Butain, who's now writing for television herself, and it's made me happy that all of those writers have... Uh, continue to write for television and film. Um, and I would like to think that one of the reasons why was that they had a very comfortable new situation. And so um, I cooked lunch for them most days. And, um, you know, we had a coffee maker. And when the coffee maker was empty, someone would make more coffee. Yes. Um, and then at the end of the day, we'd have a, a cocktail. And um, that would kind of encourage people to be even more free-flowing at the end of the day. And so the next day we felt like we could start kind of fresh and excitingly. So it worked out pretty well, all told. Okay, well, let's, if we can, back up to the film for a moment. Um, mm. it, it is a, a very dubious, a challenging thing to have something that's your baby that you've created. You want to very often, most uh, 
first writers want to be able to do their own screenplay and then it gets handed over and then you start to realize the background politics and then what started out originally being conceived as a very nice package with certain individuals involved, they start to fall away and disappear and new ones come in. So it must have been quite terrorizing for you to see your beloved series uh, of unfortunate events in the hands of others who are playing havoc with it. How did you handle that? Um, probably not that well. <laughs> um, yeah, it was not, it was not pleasant. Um, and um, it, yeah, it was. I mean, it was quite exhausting. I don't really know what else to say about it. But um, uh, I mean, and I think also because. Um, in Hollywood, there's so much ego going on that um, all those conflicts feel really enormous. Mm. And, um, you know, somehow I, I just thought, oh, this movie is going to be like a landmark of terrible movies and forever people will associate it with it being a terrible movie. But that's just not how anything goes, really. Um, and so, I yeah, it felt enormous and um, inescapable. And then... I think also what was toughest was that I was continuing to write books and go out on the road and talk about myself in situations like these. And the tone was always, well, this must be a dream come true. Yeah, in the, in the meanwhile, <laughs> like the it's The most nightmare. exciting thing that can ever happen to you is happening right now. How do you feel? And I didn't feel that I could say, oh, I'm filled with despair about it. I wish you hadn't even mentioned it. My blood has run cold because that doesn't sound very grateful. Well, when you walked onto the Paramount lot and, and you actually went onto the stage where you were seeing, if you will, the, the fruition of your imagination coming to, together, um, one of the striking things about the movie visually is the production design. It kind yeah. of has a no-time look to it. I mean, I love the car with, uh, you know, the mahogany dashboard and a reel-to-reel -reel deck on it. And, and it, was, it was just absolutely glorious. With your wife being an illustrator and obviously very visually uh, clued in, would the two of you, you know, talking bed late at night and say, this is looking great or it's, it's horrific? Or what, how would the two of you work with the dynamic, both of you being artists? Um, I mean, it, it really varied. The, uh, the process of working on something like that that's so enormous when there's so many people involved is really quite schizophrenic. Yeah. And so, I mean, a story that I've told before is that one of the steepest downhills I've ever experienced from elation to boredom happened one of the times that I visited the set and they were building the lake um, for the wide window and I walked into this enormous room and there's hundreds of people running around doing this thing and I was just marveling at it and it looked beautiful and I was just standing there thinking, oh, look at this magic that is happening. No wonder everyone wants to go into the movies. And then they said, will you come over here? We'd like your advice on something. And they had a huge tank of water and they put these enormous stones in of varying shades of gray and they were shining lights on them to figure out which shade of gray they should paint the bottom of the lake. <laughs> <laughs> and I suddenly thought, I'll chew off my own arm to get out of this room. How did I go from thinking everything is magical to, please, dear, I need to get out of here. I'll do anything. Um, and so there was a lot of experiences like that. Um, Rick Heinrich was the production designer. He does marvelous work. And so, you know, we would get to see little glimpses of things sometimes, and that would be very exciting. But, um, yeah, it was a, I mean, I hate to say roller coaster ride because, I don't like roller coaster rides, but it was a roller coaster ride. I don't either. Ride. Wow. So <laughs> I, I, I hate them. When you saw Jim Carrey's uh, interpretation of Count Olaf, um, certainly, I mean, I'm sure there was some, you know, riffing that he did, uh, you know, very, very much like uh, comedic persons. They will in, improvise on the, the set. Were you delighted, uh, bemused, amused? How did you interpret what Carrey was doing with your, your character? Um, I think kind of relieved. I was terrified it would be really, really ghastly. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, that was a lot of my feeling um, in general about the film is that for a while it just looked like it was going to be just something teeth-gnashingly terrible. And um, once it became clear to me that whatever it was going to be, it was not going to be that, um, I was very relieved. And, I mean, Jim Carrey works very hard, I must yes. say. Yes, and he um, 
to watch someone throw themselves so completely into something that was so peculiar was um, hypnotic. With your character of Violet Baudelaire, uh, with her you know, constant use of her ribbon, how did that come about? How did you envision that? Um, I mean, to be perfectly honest, in a very early draft of The Bad Beginning, my editor was looking at it, and she said to me, um, I feel that there's not enough of a physical description of Violet. And I had really tried to make the three Baudelaire's in many ways as blank as possible um, because I wanted everyone to to be able to imagine that it was they. To project onto them. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, they're not even identified um, by race and uh, in illustrations that are in many of the international editions are different than they are. Um, in the United States and Britain, and so the Baudelaire's look different ways all over the place, and I have too many drawings that too many children have sent me of what they think the Baudelaire's look like. So (laughs) I was very loath to make anything too much of a physical description. And then there's kind of the addition with um, a teenage girl that any physical description begins to seem kind of fetishistic. Mm. You know, and there yes, are so yes. many poor children's books that identify their heroines by these physical traits that just um, are extremely off-putting. I think the older you get, I think maybe <laughs> when I was a teenage boy, I didn't mind them. But yes. I think now when you read Slightly them, menacing as you get older. Yeah. You know, yeah. she was just the prettiest princess with the daintiest <laughs> hands. And you think, yeah. oh, why are you looking at her hands? Um, and so I was very loath to do it. And she said, you know, you could just even say what her hair looks like. And I thought, oh, but then I thought, well, here's something she can do with her hair that feels very physical and is tied to her inventing mind and gives you a clear picture without actually giving you a clear picture. And that's been a delight too. And so I meet many um, young people who say, oh, I tie up my hair too. I do this thing too. And, And I see that the the lack of identification has helped them identify. Okay, so in the creative process, do you find yourself, I mean, people envision that writers are channeling some entity out in the ether that suddenly comes into their consciousness and they create, or is it, in your case, slapping the clay down, if you will, on the potter's wheel and forming it and reworking it and reworking it until it emerges? Do you ever wake up in the middle of the night with, you know, Eureka? Uh, this is it. I know what I'm going to do. it, And then you, you can't go to sleep and you get some Ritz crackers and milk or something and you go down to your, to your word processor. Um, that has happened. I wake up in the middle of the night. I have a fantastic idea. I don't get to work, but I write it down. And in the morning, it's horrible. <laughs> Always. Uh, Never been worth it. <laughs> kind of like any idea you have at three in the morning, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Unless the idea is, you know what, it's time to go home. It's probably a poor idea. And so... No, I just do a lot of work, and I, um, I, I'm a big believer at staying at my desk and that you write 10 pages of total nonsense, but that at his... the end of the day, there's maybe one phrase that will enable you to maybe not write 10 pages of utter nonsense. And there is the original template given to you by Kit Reed. Uh, yes, and then also, honestly, working with Stephen Merritt of the Magnetic Fields, um, He's a songwriter I had admired, and Mm -hmm. then I met him when I was in New York, and we've been working together on all kinds of things for a long time. But I remember that um, one day we were working on this collaboration we were doing, and then in New York, he liked to meet at this just horrible diner, the worst diner. He always had the same tea and the same food, and I tried literally everything on the menu, waiting for something not to be horrible, and it was horrible. And we'd both drink this black tea and get caffeinated and caffeinated and caffeinated and we were working for hours and it was just everything every idea we had was worse than the next we try something out it would be terrible and then finally it was time for him to do what he did every evening then which was to go to the same gay bar and drink cognac until closing time and i would walk with him there and have a single cognac and he said all right it's time for cocktails and um, right when he said that, we said, well, maybe this thing, let's try that tomorrow. Yeah, that sounds good. And then as we were walking to the bar, he said, this has been a great day. Hmm. And I thought, what? And he said, yeah, well, we were, tomorrow we have that thing. We'll, we'll work on that thing. And he wasn't being 
Pollyanna, mm-hmm. as anyone who's seen Stephen Merritt for longer than 10 seconds can attest to. Um, he, he meant it. And he had was a, kind of ahead of the curve on me in terms of um, being an artist and making things, enough to know that you have to do all that horrible thing before anything is good. Um, that you have to write 30 verses with terrible rhymes, and then there's one good one, and suddenly it all kind of comes together. And um, I, I, that moment I savored, because by the time we got to the bar, I thought, it has been a good day. We yeah, did do that yeah, thing. Yeah. And so now when I write poorly, I think, what a good day. <laughs> that, that, that is it's so instrumental, no, no pun intended, um, and helpful. I mean, it, it really is, I think, for budding artists of all descriptions. Now, let's talk about the music. Um, you are an accordionist, uh, amongst other things. And, uh, you know, uh, growing up Jewish, I don't imagine you probably played, you know, Our Lady of Spain, which is the proverbial selection that most yeah. people think of. Um, what drew you to the accordion? I mean, it's obviously used in Jewish music, um, but w- what, what was the fascination? Yeah, I mean, I, I did not play the accordion when I was a child, so I don't actually oh. think it had anything to do with Jewish music that I heard, although certainly yeah. it, I, it was here and there in my childhood. But um, I took piano lessons, you know, kind of like anyone else, and I had some acumen for music. I was in a chorus also, so I had a pretty... Uh, serious classical music mm. education. Um, but then I got to college and I wanted to be in a band. And it was this kind of one moment in pop culture history, the kind of late 80s to the early 90s, when keyboards were not cool at all. Yes. Yeah. Everything had to be authentic. And for some reason, a keyboard was not authentic. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. An electric guitar was very authentic. Right. But a synthesizer was obviously <laughs> fake. I love you, little uh, Poochie sorry, in the background. That no, that's all right. What's your Poochie's name? <laughs> His name is Egg Roll. Egg Roll. Yeah. <laughs> Were you, did you get inspired on it by a Chinese restaurant on Irving Street or something? Uh, no, the shelter had named him Eggnog, but we decided that Jewish people could not have a dog named Eggnog. So what we eat on Christmas, of course, is egg rolls. Okay. Um, well, well, that's appropriate. Certainly for Christmas, most of Jewish yeah. people go to a Chinese restaurant on Christmas, so <laughs> that, that, that works out. So anyway, so in that moment, there was um, that was you could not play a keyboard in a band, and so. Um, I went to a accordion factory outside of San Francisco, no longer there. And, um, I said, I would like to buy a very cheap accordion. And they said, here's one. And I took it home and I taught myself it and then, um, was in a few bands. And so I always say that, uh, I'm the first person in history to take up the accordion basically to meet women. (laughs) Um, And then my kind of other standard accordion joke is that if you play the accordion, you're probably the best accordion player than anybody knows. (laughs) And so I'm not very good. But as a consequence of it being an unusual instrument, I've had the opportunities to play in situations in which if I were a guitar player of equal acumen, no one would be interested. And so... That's been very lucky. So uh, did you also play with squeeze boxes, which is uh, similar, but a little bit different to an accordion? Yeah, I mean, I've messed around with a bandonian or two, and a um, concertina. The accordion um, has kind of never been standardized, which is interesting. You know, there were all Mm. kinds of pianos and piano fortes for a while, and then somebody said, no, this is the piano, and that's the only piano we're doing from now on. And the accordion never did that. Wow. And so uh, the nice thing is that it really fits into a, more music than you would think um, because it's been used all over the world in different circumstances. So that's kind of fun. I was in India not that long ago, and I was messing around with a few harmoniums that they have there, which is, you know, basically the same thing. But to be reminded that a polka and a tango and a raga can all be played on more or less the same instrument is um, right. very exciting. Yeah, it is. Let me ask you about albums. Um, you have said elsewhere that you've been inspired to write by listening to an album. In fact, you've arranged the material of uh, a literary work in accordance with particular albums and their movements. Uh, can you get a, a particular chord uh, sequence that inspires you, or is it lyrically that inspires you, or is it uh, atmospheric from a memory that you have associated with the song? What, what, what is it that turns the, if you will, the ignition for imagination by listening to, to certain albums? I mean, it's just how it feels, I think. I mean, everything that you mentioned, I'm sure, is a part of that. But I think with pop music in particular, though also with classical music, there's some 
kind of effect that happens that can't quite be charted out in any of the categories that we lay down for music, which I think is very interesting with music. And then certainly with, um, with albums, the way they are sequenced and the way a brilliant album is somehow more than the sum of its parts mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is really great. You know, when you look, when you listen to Sgt. Pepper, it's a, it's an amazing experience that the individual songs on Sgt. Pepper don't necessarily give you. Right. And that's very interesting to me. And um, the way that a a well-sequenced album takes you on its own journey that way. And so, and I think because of hanging out with musicians who are, say, oh, look, here's our songs. We can't figure out what order they're in. And they put them in one order and then they put them in another. And just to kind of be a fly on the wall while that was happening. Um, I did a show from Abbey Road in London um, a few months back. And one of the things that struck me, and there I am in, you know, the Holy of Holies Studio too. Yeah. And um, sequencing. The general public do not take into account how imperative and important that is. And I'm I'm encouraged by your sensitivity to it. And you're completely right. I mean, it's essentially symphonic movements are, are the equivalent of the order in which something comes. If you didn't have um, an Indian-esque tune on side two of Sgt. Pepper, the whole album would not play the same way. Yeah. Do you rearrange the order? Uh, I mean, it's, it's much more difficult contextually with a narrative, but do you switch scenes around sometimes when you write and say, okay, th- th- this is not the right flow. I'm, I'm moving this up and I'm pushing that back. How often does that happen for you? Um, well, it happened a lot for one of my novels, Adverbs, which is uh, a novel in stories. And so then I really got to sequence it the way you would an album. I really got to think about the ways in which it um, could be rearranged. Of course, mostly in a narrative, you, don't get, you can't really do that as much as maybe it's tempting to. Um, but I think it was more when I was, would think about specific records when I was working on something, I would think, okay, what's next? After there's a ballad here, what do they do? Or after this long song that kind of churns to a roar, what happens after that? You know, and there's so many, and I think it's the same thing that I take from poetry and that I take from novels that I take, that I read, that um, just think about the way they bump up against one another, all these things, the way they make a structure and the way that that might be a scaffolding for which you could do something entirely different, but it would feel the same in some way. And with Bottle Grove, um, I was working on this book, and I really wanted it to move very quickly and um, sharply. And I started to think about records that did that, and then I found one. And then I just thought, well, this record has nine songs. I'm going to have nine chapters. Let's see how we go from there. Wow. Wow. Um, As a child, were you understood? (laughs) Um, No, I don't think I was, really. (laughs) Um, I certainly didn't feel like I was often. Um, I mean, I think feeling isolated and misunderstood is such a crucial part of childhood and adolescence, certainly, that, um, that I think even if everyone completely understands you, you, um, you, you have to, you, you cling to the notion that you're misunderstood, um, you know, and I, and now I meet so many young people who have that kind of similar thing now. I mean, so many people who have a t-shirt with Robert Smith on it and they say, no Mm -hmm. one understands me. And I think, and yet I think I can tell you many things about yourself right now. Um, but I did feel, uh, alone. I felt alone with books is I think often how I felt and that I was made to believe not incorrectly that my preferences uh, were peculiar. As far as tailing your sense of humor, which is is apparent immediately with with everything that you do, and and obviously you just in generally conversing with you, um, it's such a, a a primary part of your personality. Was that crafted by a Jewish sensibility, or being picked on as a kid, a sense of isolation, loneliness, or was it fertilized by Lisa Brown? Because I've I've heard that the two of you <laughs> laugh in bed endlessly sometimes at night with the giggles, which I find heartening. By the way, I love that. I would say all of those things for sure, but it certainly began with a Jewish sensibility. Um, I grew up in an extended family that was much diminished by horror. Mm. And um, there was nothing off for a joke. You could joke about anything because that was the only way to face the despair and horror that was so apparent in the world. 
And so I definitely learned that was the sensibility that I learned. I've, I've heard you say that you had actually distant cousins that were, in a sense, became close cousins because of the, if you will, the gaps. Yeah. yeah. They were, I mean, yeah. They're, um, <laughs> as my sister always said, they're cousins we could have married. Um, <laughs> you know, not at all bio, biologically close or, or genealogically close, but yeah, people we spent the holidays with. And um, in fact, it was only kind of in late childhood that I began to realize that there were plenty of people who didn't even know their second and third cousins um, because our family was so small in that way. Um, so it de- yeah, it definitely began there. Um, it continued with um, all the culture I was inhaling um, when I was an adolescent. I mean, the films of Jim Jarmusch had a huge influence yes, on me. Yes. Um, the, the kind of humor that's there that is, um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I categorize it maybe less Jewish and more Eastern European, you know, the somewhere in the kind of Kafka and Jim yes. Jarmus and the master and Margarita and these ways of humor that are not jokey, you know, they're not like Jim Gaffigan. There's something else. Um, and that's appealing. And then, yeah, gosh, as soon as I met Lisa Brown, I mean, Lisa Brown's best friend and roommate in college um, said of us, <laughs> she still says it, you know, before you came around, Daniel, Lisa Brown was always laughing by herself and no one had any idea what she was laughing at. <laughs> and now the two of you are laughing and we still don't know what you're laughing at, but at least there's two of you. And that's how we are. Yeah. You have a son. And before we go, I'd like to uh, just ask you, uh, is he turning out the way you anticipated or has he got his own unique take on things and personality? I mean, we, you can be quite surprised by one's offspring. So Yeah, they're like people in that way. <laughs> <laughs> they just turn out to be their own thing. Yes, yeah. they do. And they take more than watering. Yeah, I mean, when um, people I know are having their first child, I always say, what you think your child will be like is kind of like what you thought marriage would be like when you were 11. <laughs> That's you know, true. I'm going to marry someone and they're going to have a moat. That's the important <laughs> thing. They'll have a moat around their house. And then it turns out that's not, even if you live with someone with a moat, that doesn't actually turn out to be the primary thing that marriage is made of. And I think um, it's the same with a child. You think, um, you know, gosh, I'll teach them this and this will happen and then they'll be like this. And then they just almost immediately, right, almost immediately upon exiting the body, um, they become something else. I cannot thank you enough, Daniel Handler, for being a part of Watching America. Just to remind my audience, we've been talking, obviously, to Daniel Handler, aliasly known as Lemony Snicket. And not only has he created the very successful series of unfortunate events, but his latest novel for grown-ups is called Bottle Grove. Daniel, thank you so much. You've you've really made me incredibly happy and joyous, and I'm so glad you're in the world. Uh, well, thank you so much. That's very charming of you to say. I mean it. Take care and God bless. You too. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Our executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Heather Mazzoni is Chief of Content, and Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I am the series creator and host, Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.